All right, Katie, thank you very much. And I uh, hope you enjoy that. That was pretty cool to see. Uh, that was fun, yeah? Yeah, good. Well, listen, so I have a couple of uh, small children myself, except they're older now. And so my, um, my oldest, we have three kids. Our oldest is in college. Um, it was just a few years ago we were dedicating her. Um, and so we've um, been on this journey a little bit. But this weekend, um, I took her to, um, to get a car, and I went to a car dealership. How many of you just absolutely love going to car dealerships that you don't know? So if you're anything like me, and you may or may not be, but on our way to the car dealership, um, I began, I realized that later, I began to build up like a wall of defense already, like anticipating that the salesman is going to try to scam me, right, and that I, they can't be trusted. That's my expectation. So we're going there, and I'm talking to Megan about the, the dealership and what to expect and, you know, what will happen. And I realize that I'm kind of building this anticipation, there's an anxiety rising almost in me of like, this is, I need to be sure that I don't show too much interest in the car, you know, you don't want to show that or you're going to tip your hand and lose your leverage in negotiations. You want to make sure that you're not, you know, uh, buying into all that they're selling when you're listening to them and ask the right questions and on. So I walk in, I find myself walking into a, like a cold dealership. I didn't know them at all. And I'm already skeptical. My walls are up and I'm just trying to, um, I'm trying to retain, I realize some measure of control because I don't want to be taken, you know, on this deal. So I walk in, and this receptionist um, says to us, like, welcome, glad you're here. And she just seemed, like, really friendly. That made me even more skeptical. <laughs> then I'm like, well, clearly, like, you're trying to be friendly, so I like the dealership, and I'm ready to buy and give you more money than I should. And, and then she kept talking, and then as we were talking, we were looking for a stick shift car for Megan. And uh, she's like, oh, have you ever driven one before? Yeah, I have. She's like, oh, you know, I wish I would have. That's one regret. I wish I would have taught my kids how to drive stick. And as she's talking, I'm like, she may actually be a real human being, you know. <clears throat> like, she may actually care about what she's saying. And this might actually be a real authentic experience and not just a sales job. And as we spend a few minutes there, I began to feel those defenses coming down. And then they totally scanned me. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Those defenses came down, and I began to feel positive toward this dealership that just a few minutes ago I began, I was incredibly like, skeptical, and all the walls were up. And the reason for that was not because I talked to the CEO of the company, but because I had an experience with a person at a front desk. And every organization and CEO will tell you that they would love to push their values downstream. They want every customer who touches their product or their organization to feel the best of the values of their organization. The challenge is to actually make that happen. Well, here in this dealership, I encountered the dealership through the receptionist. And what I experienced was the values of a dealership that felt to me all of a sudden genuine and warm and friendly. And as I began to reflect on that, I thought, you know what, what if, imagine this for a moment, what if Christianity were like a car dealership? And what if people drove up to it, not unlike the way I drove up to that dealership, with some skepticism, with some doubt, with some fears that they might be taken, because they have past experiences that have been hurtful or painful. But they're willing to walk in the door one more time, and what are they going to experience when they walk in that door? And what if I am the receptionist? I would look awkward in the dress. I'm going to acknowledge that. That's what she was wearing. But what if you were 
the receptionist? What if you were the first person that somebody saw in that lobby of Christianity, where someone was coming to try to figure out, do I want to, quote unquote, buy your product? If I can use that term, if you know what I'm saying. And I would, I would argue that there is the first exposure that someone has to a company or to a product is so important. And what is it? What is it that they would experience in you that would help them see, you know, Christianity? That might be worth bringing my walls down for. That might be worth engaging. That might be worth something. This morning, as we get back into an ancient letter that was written hundreds of years ago from the Apostle Paul, he writes to young, his young protege, Timothy. And what he gives to him are some qualities, three of them, three qualities that should be a part of anyone who sits at the front desk of Christianity. Anyone who sits there and has an opportunity to engage with people who may be willing to give things one more shot. And Paul, if you've been with us at all in this series, he's about to die. He knows he's about to die. And so he writes to Timothy, and in the section we're in, he gives three qualities or characteristics that should mark the person who's sitting at the front desk. So that when you experience them, you experience a taste of God. They want to invite you to turn to the book of 2 Timothy. It's a little letter that was written hundreds of years ago. If you have a Bible, there's, don't have a Bible, there's one in the chair near you. I invite you to, to take one home if you don't own one. But 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. We're only looking at two verses this morning. Verses 13 and 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let me read them with you here, and then I'm going to make a few comments on them. Paul's writing, again, from prison. He knows he's about to die, and he's passing things on to Timothy, his young protege. He says this, What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know, let's look at that real quick, because I promised you, I said there's three things, three characteristics. The truth is, there's actually three verbs that I want to look at, and I'm not an English teacher, but these are important. So there's three verbs, and here's the first one. He says at the beginning, what you have heard, okay? What you have heard from me, and that's where it opens. So here's the deal. Here's what he says. He says, I want you to remember what you heard. And this is important because we have to remember that what Paul is telling Timothy is, Timothy, I want you to remember what you heard because, Timothy, there is no Bible yet, right? You can't look up 2 Timothy yet because I'm writing it right now. You can't look up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because it's not been organized yet. Paul, we believe, is writing this about 67 A.D. Jesus went to the cross, 32, 33, 34 A.D., about 30 years later, Paul is writing. The scriptures aren't organized until at the earliest 30 years after when Paul is writing. And so he's writing to, to Timothy in a time where there's no organized scriptures yet, not no, no New Testament, excuse me, scriptures yet. And he's saying, the things that you have heard from me, he's like, I want you to recall, Timothy, do you remember? And now I'm, I'm kind of filling in some of the blanks. He's almost like, Timothy, remember when we traveled to Ephesus together? Remember when we were there and we tried to set up the church because you were there with me? Remember the stories that I told you when I came back from Lystra and Iconium and Derby? Do you remember when, when I went to Galatia with you and we were dealing with that church problem? Do you remember the things that you heard? Do you remember what people said, their objections? Do you remember how we dealt with that? Do you remember how I taught about the Old Testament and Christ being the fulfillment of the law, and he didn't come to replace it, but fulfill it, and talked about the Beatitudes and thought, do you remember the things that you heard? 
Remember what you have heard, Timothy. Go back to your past, to your memory banks, to the moments in your past when you were most impressed by matters of faith, and we had incredible experiences in these places. I want you to remember what you have heard from other people. And the best way to remember what you have heard, and I think you know this is true, is not just to sit there and remember it, but the best way to remember things is actually to be responsible to pass it on to the next generation or to, to teach it. Because the very next thing that he says is, after you remember what you heard, I want you to do this. I want you to, and here's our next word, I want you to keep. I want you to keep as a pattern of teaching. Here's what he says. See that in the first verse, in verse 13? Keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. So he wants Timothy to be able to take the teaching of Christianity and continue to carry it forward. Keep the pattern of sound teaching. And, and I would argue that we want teachers in Christianity who are, who are great. Not just good, but we want teachers who are, who are great, who can push forward with great um, intellect, ability, insight, what it means to follow Christ to understand the Old Testament, to understand the original languages, to understand the original culture in which this was written. We need people who can kind of be on the cutting edge and on the outer edges of orthodoxy so that we don't fall into false teaching. We need people like that. But I would argue this, that as much as we need people who are great academics, what Paul writes as a clarifier of sound teaching is so important to see. He says, I want you to keep as a pattern of sound teaching, and then he says, with faith and love in Christ. See, I would argue that the reason that Christianity survived the first century wasn't because Christianity is built on the back of academics. It wasn't because Christians were the smartest people in the first century. In fact, I would suggest that it's because Christians were captured, were persecuted, were strapped to poles and stuck in Nero's gardens and lit on fire. And then their parents, their grandchildren, the next generation, instead of being angry and vengeful and going out for blood for those who persecuted them, made the decision to care for them, to love them, to show kindness and mercy. That what I see when Paul is writing this, is says, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love that is in Christ Jesus. That Timothy, don't just go out and, and teach, because Christianity isn't just about the replication of teaching principles. It is about what we teach, but also the character that goes along with it, with the faith and love that exists in Christ Jesus. I want you to keep both, Timothy. You may or may not know that some of the smartest people who have even begun the scientific revolution that we know of today were Christians. Isaac Newton, for example. When you look, for example, at the top 10 hospitals in North America, nine of the top 10 hospitals were started by Christians or influenced deeply by Christians in their origin. That when you look at the universities coming from Oxford and Cambridge out to Harvard to Yale, the leading universities that have created spaces for people in this country and beyond to think about creating technologies that you and I live in, they were started, most of them, those ones that I named, were started expressly for the purpose of carrying on the Christian tradition for explaining and teaching the scriptures to people. Christians have been thought leaders, social leaders throughout time. Patterns of sound teaching should continue, but faith and love in Christ must be a part of that. And then he goes on for the third thing, all right? And then the third thing, he puts it this way. He said, I want you also to guard. To guard what? To guard, he says, the good deposit. 
the good deposit. I want you to guard the good deposit. He puts it in verse 14. The good deposit that was entrusted to you, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. This good deposit, I would say, is eternal life. It's like, it's this, it's this gift of faith in Christ that is, a, that is a kind of way of seeing the world in which we are in right now that gets us out of the rhythms of just the day-to-day. The good deposit is this deposit of eternal life in a world which, as we talked about last week, if, if God doesn't engage and in, in, interact with this world, our world is a, a closed-loop system. As I said last week, the sun goes up, the sun comes down. Every day it's the same. Author to Ecclesiastes says it over and over again. All the streams flow into the oceans, but the oceans never fill up. Why? What's going on? Someone explain that to me. Life is meaningless over and over again. We live, we die, we will be forgotten over and over and over again. And then last week we saw Paul writing to Timothy. He said, God, through Christ, brought immortality. All of a sudden, to engage and interrupt this cycle of life and death, life and death, over and over and over again, boom, God comes in from outside of time, and he interjects himself into our world and gives us this eternal life. And that is the good deposit that Paul is saying to Timothy, guard that thing, that seed of faith that's in you that holds on to eternal life, that draws you to realize that life isn't meaningless, that life has a purpose, and that it goes beyond just sun up, sun down, someone will disappoint me, things won't go well, things will go well, they won't go well, people will be forgotten, all that life. Whoa. There's an eternity here that has been placed in my heart from a God outside of time and space. And he says, guard the good deposit. Guard the good deposit with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament would come on people intermittently, would land on people, if you will, be be a part of their lives for a moment and then go. And the New Testament teaches that the Holy Spirit is different now, functions differently in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is what we call indwells people of faith. And so the Holy Spirit now rather than just showing up intermittently, shows up in my life, in your life, with routineness, if you have faith in Christ. That there's this ongoing constantness to the Holy Spirit's engagement with you and with me. Which really matters, it makes a big difference in this sense, that I can now be guided by the Spirit. When I read the Scriptures, I can understand the Scriptures by the Spirit. I'm provoked to consider my own sin and failure because of the work of the Holy Spirit in me. That there's an ongoingness when sometimes, when we read in the the Scriptures, that sometimes when I don't know how to pray for you, the Holy Spirit intercedes for me with words that I cannot express and understand. And so what Paul does here is he says, Timothy, I I want you to guard it. And so you have a responsibility. But I want you to remember that that's actually the Holy Spirit who's going to help you with this, because you now have a Spirit of God indwelling you. In other words, the God who came from outside of time, who injected, if you will, himself into this world through Christ, when Christ died and was resurrected and ascended and Christ left the world, what Christ did to continue to be involved in our world, he sent the Holy Spirit so that that Spirit, the God who draws us to the immortal outside of our day, sun up, sun down, 
that God exists within me. So within me, then, is the Spirit of God, the same member of the Trinity who draws me daily, not just to see my life as a, another morning, another day, family up, down, family down, family up, family down, people sick, people healthy, people die, whatever, but that the Spirit of God himself draws me out of that rhythm and helps me see with eternal perspective that life isn't just about what I see right here. And he says to Timothy, I want you to guard it. Be careful with that. Like, it's almost like I've given you $100 million, and you wouldn't just throw that around. Like, you would put that somewhere. You guard what can be lost, stolen, or damaged. And in my life and in yours, I don't know if this is true for you, that perspective can be damaged, lost, or stolen in a hurry. I can get discouraged that life seems to be inevitable sometimes. People will get sick and die. I can get discouraged, maybe you can, that friends will come and be good friends for a season, and then they'll go. And that hurts. I can get discouraged over a lot of things that can seem cyclical. Like, oh, just that's the way it goes, that's the way it goes, that's the way it goes, that's the way it goes. And then all of a sudden I'm reminded there's an eternal perspective. Eternity has been placed in the hearts of man. That the Holy Spirit is here, and Paul is telling Timothy, don't give up, my friend. Don't give up and don't let, not just persecution, but don't let just the daily humdrum of life draw out of you that gift of eternal perspective that God has placed in you, his Holy Spirit, so that you can live in a daily way, in an eternal way, that you can be drawn to the hope and faith of God. And so I ask myself a couple of questions as I think about this section of Scripture, small little section. I ask three questions relative to these three verbs that are here. Okay, here's the first question. What have I heard? I want to ask you this question. What have I heard? What have you heard? Some of you in this room would say you're Christian. Some of you listening online would say I'm a Christian. Some of you in this room would say I'm not a Christian. I used to be, or I'm thinking about it, or some listening online would say the same thing, like I'm not sure. I want to encourage you to think really for a minute. What have you heard? Where have been the most powerful moments in your life where your faith has been shaped or people of faith have impacted you? And for me, it's junior high retreats, believe it or not. Many of you hated them as adults. Thank you for doing them, by the way, because they do impact people. Missions trips for me have been powerful. I remember even um, when I went to uh, school down in Dallas, I have a diploma from Dallas Seminary, and that's been framed. I don't even know where it is anymore. Um, so there you have it. But you know what I do remember is my wife got me a picture. The same day I got a diploma frame, my wife got me a picture of one of the buildings at the school. And around the mat of that frame was a place about a two-inch wide mat around that frame. And what she did is she went around to all my professors and had them sign their name on that mat around the frame. And that was hanging in my office. And when I would look at that, I wouldn't remember the diploma. It wasn't about the diploma. It was about the memories of the people who have invested in me. It was remembering what I heard. It was seeing the names of people who gave to me sound teaching with faith and love in Christ. Not just academics, but character with it. Not just academics, but remind us how to live it out. And so I want to encourage you, who's in your picture frame, if you will? Who are the people that have taught you, who have influenced you? Please don't forget that. Paul would say, don't, don't forget that stuff. Remember what you have heard and from whom you have heard it. Second question is this. What do I need to keep teaching and living? What do I need to keep teaching and living? What stories need to be told and to whom? You know, a few minutes ago here we had child dedication. This is a great opportunity to raise these young 
kids, young, small human beings who are sucking on plastic bananas. Right? Yeah. To one day, we pray and we hope to grow up to be strong young men and young women and older men and older women who will rest in the faith. How? Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 7 says to parents, impress these things. Impress them on your kids. Don't hammer them, but impress them. Talk about it with regularity. What are the stories that need to be told? I'll be honest with you. One of my fears in coming, um, going into ministry um, and realizing at some point I may become a pastor or missionary or whatever was raising children in that environment. Many of you know that children of pastors or missionaries can have a hard go of it. And so I've said it before, I'll say it again to the church. Thank you for your kindness to my children over the years. Recognize them by their first name, not their last. That has been huge, hugely important. And I'm very grateful to you for that. I began reading and researching, how is it that some kids who grow up in missionary homes or pastors' homes, why is it that some lose it and go off the deep end? What are the characteristics if there are any, that I can learn from. And I did this when I was still a student at Dallas Seminary because I was trying to not make a bunch of mistakes and learn from people who've been before. I found a thesis on that very topic, believe it or not, in the library at Dallas Seminary, 250 pages long. I didn't read the whole thing because it's too much for me to read at that time, but I do remember reading the essence of it, the, the summary of it. And here's what I learned, that research says, and their research thesis bore this out, that the number one the number one shared characteristic of children who are in ministry who didn't lose their faith when they became young adults, the number one characteristic that drew them all together was the relationship, the quality of the relationship between their parent and their father. Which is why I asked this question. Dads, even moms, what do I need to teach and live not just teach, but also live. Which is why I think when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, remember the pattern of sound teaching, but remember it with faithfulness and love. Because teaching without that, it just puffs up and allows you to control the universe. But it doesn't help you to love and engage people. And so while you may not feel like an academic, don't worry, you don't need to teach your children Greek and Hebrew or make sure that they know all those finer tunes. You know what your kids need from you? They need to see a mom and dad who are faithfully and in love following Christ over and over and over again. What do I need to keep teaching? What do I need to keep living? Final question is this, and this is probably where it hits me the most, if I'm honest. How do I guard myself with God's help from losing eternal perspective? And I would go back to what I tried to communicate earlier, that if God actually did invade this time and space continuum, this time and space rhythm, if God actually came into the middle of my world and your world and injected immortality into what otherwise is a very mortal world, then here's what that means for me. That I don't have the luxury of being able to just say, you know what, I'm going to do whatever I want when I'm offended you know what, when that person cuts me off in traffic, I'm going to let it fly. And when that person believes differently about our current cultural moment than I do, it makes me angry. I have the right to be angry. 
You see, I realize that, and I think you know this too, that if you're a follower of Christ and if the Holy Spirit indwells me and indwells you, there is a seed of eternity that is dropped into my soul and into yours. And all of a sudden, I don't have the luxury to dismiss that and just do whatever I want whenever I want to. I must allow the Spirit of God to transform me, to bring about what the Spirit says is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So that, so that, if you were to walk in to the dealership, and I was sitting at the desk, my hope would be that if you're looking to figure out what will your experience with Christianity be, and you only get to experience me, that what you would experience is the fruit of the Spirit because the trust is guarded. That you would experience what God would want you to experience. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And then the next level of right teaching and right care so you can understand your world and what may be coming. And so as I look at this section of Scripture and see what Paul is writing to Timothy, I think, you know, what greater thing for us right now than to remember what you have heard, what has been passed on to you. Take a moment and do that with your parents, with your grandparents, with your youth leaders, with whoever it was has influenced you. And then think again, what is it that I need to be teaching and living in front of my children, maybe in leading a small group, maybe in teaching in the kids' ministry, maybe in just guiding your children through it. And then how do I guard myself right now with God's help from losing eternal perspective to remember I don't have the right anymore just to act out the way I want to because I have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit if you have faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm confident that if someone walks into the dealership, if someone walks in to try to figure out who God is, they're not going to interact with our big leaders in Christianity right now, whoever you think those are, but they're going to interact with you with your character, with your kindness, with your faith, with your love, with your teaching. And let me encourage you, remember what you've heard. Keep the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love and guard the good deposit. Don't lose eternal perspective so that the Spirit of God that dwells in you can bear fruit of the Spirit in your life. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to revisit some ancient teaching from Paul. To encourage young Timothy as he carried on the faith and tried to endure in the face of hardship to remember where he's come from and remember what he's been taught and then to carry on with integrity and with strength right teaching but with character with faith with love to guide that and then finally to guard the good deposit to protect the seed of eternal life that is planted in me and planted in anyone who places their faith in Christ. Because it can be stolen, so to speak, it can be damaged, it can be diminished, it can, the shine can wear off. We can 
lose sight of what faith and love really looks like. We can lose sight of hope sometimes. And so I pray that you'd help us to guard that good deposit, guard the seed of eternal life that is planted in us, and with faith and love, continue to pursue you and share your hope and love with all around us who we have opportunity to engage. So Father, we love you. We thank you for the time that we can share this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.